for many minorities, there's we have to consider from a diversity standpoint that there is a lot of medical mistrust for some of our, you know, our patients from different backgrounds. Um, and, you know, thinking about presenting a clinical trial, you know, if, if you're, if you're trying to elicit a, an older African-American man who maybe learned that you never go to the doctor and you can't trust the doctor because of the history of, you know, black people in America being used or abused by the medical system, there are these things that are ingrained that make it tough, but then we're also battling against health disparities in minority populations and also less access to care. Hey, what's happening, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. My name's Kieran O'Fairman, and I'm the host of the show. And today is probably up there with one of my favorite episodes I've ever done with this show. Um, the area of psychology and cancer is, is one that fascinates me, and I've I've wanted for a long time to put something like this out there. And um, but I need an expert to do so, and and that expert happens to be um, Dr. Elizabeth Monks, who is a clinical psychologist in Kansas Cancer Center. And Liz has a tremendous amount of experience in this area and does such a good job of giving us an overview of what she does in her day-to-day role and kind of identifying which people need different types of therapies and how to match all that together. Um, She also talks a lot about some of the unique psychological needs of individuals with cancer and their caregivers. And then what's really cool about Liz is that she does a lot of this work in diversity related topics such as minority psychology and um, multiculturally competent practice. And that in itself is something that I'm really interested in learning more about myself. And and we have a really cool chat towards the end of the show about that. So um, like I said, it, this has been an area that I felt has been lacking for the show in general, and I'm just delighted to to be able to chat to Liz about this. She's such a cool person, has such a great amount of experience. So um, I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you're all doing well, and um, I'll catch you in the next one. So, Liz, I'm delighted uh, we finally got to be able to do this. This is, God, over a year and a half in the making. <laughs> We're finally getting able to, to sit down and chat to you. So I'm really excited to talk to to what I think is going to be a really fascinating episode. And um, before we jump into the, the questions and what we're going to cover, why don't we start with a little bit of a background about who you are, what you're up to and, and how you got there? Yeah. Um, so I, um, you know, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and have kind of done a tour of the Midwest over the course of my psychology training. Um, I did a, a master's in psychology in Topeka, Kansas. Wasn't sure that I was what I was doing there or what was going to come from that. Um, and went on to St. Louis for a PhD in clinical psychology. And I kind of, I got into cancer psychology, I would say almost by accident. I thought maybe I would do some kind of like exercise psychology or sport psychology. I was really interested in being an athlete. Um, and then while I was on fellowship, I had the opportunity to do a practicum, um, at Washington university Barnes Jewish hospital at Siteman cancer center. And I was like, huh, cancer psychology. I have no idea what that is. I'm going I'm to jump in and see and see what it's all about. And pretty much since then, that has been 
my work, my passion, my focus, I kind of just fell into a, a niche area that I didn't expect. And sometimes people say like, wow, cancer psychology, like how do you do that? Um, and, you know, sometimes I say to other people, you know, addictions treatment, like, how do you do that? You know, I, you just find your place and, and it just fits and you, you stick with it. When, when we talk about airfield of exercise oncology, it, it sounds really niche on the outside, but then when you go behind the curtains, it's this huge broad field. Mm -hmm. Is it the same for you in practice where it's, you know, there's common issues, but it is very broad in the topics that you address and how you work. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm very, very specialized in what I do. I can't, I mean, cancer psychology very broadly covers, you know, a ton. I mean, essentially when I started, I would see any kind of cancer patient. Um, and then what ended up happening was I started specializing in bone marrow transplant patients and cellular therapy patients. So these are lots of patients that have leukemias, lymphomas, um, multiple myeloma, things that require um, stem cell transplants. Um, that population has, uh, I would say, a unique set of needs and stressors. And um, I was fortunate enough at, at KU Med Center, at the Cancer Center, to be sort of recruited to be a psychologist just for that clinic. So that area, I would say, is sort of very specialized, just as if you were a psychologist working just in breast, just in lung, just in sarcoma, um, brain tumors, you would have these very specialized groups of patients. Um, so generally, cancer psychology is very broad, and we cover so many issues. Plus, cancer affects everyone. So every person comes in with their own <laughs> histories and backgrounds, sometimes history of mental health that is now just exacerbated by the stress of cancer, um, all kinds of different situations. So you kind of never know what you're going to get. So what does, what does the process look like and, and how, how is your role in the cancer care team as a whole? Is, is it anyone gets referred on diagnosis or, or what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's pretty integrated, which I'm very lucky. I've been in other, um, cancer centers and other places where we're just sort of trying to figure out what psychology in cancer care looks like. And it's more of a, here's this additional service over here that we can refer you to. Um, I'm lucky in that I get to be in the clinic alongside the nurses, the, the physicians, um, the pharmacists, the social workers, we all work kind of as a one team. And for folks that are working up to getting a stem cell transplant, we do a, a pre-evaluation or a psychological evaluation beforehand for every single patient. So it's kind of nice that I get to touch, um, touch base with these patients very early on. And then I also get referrals just to treat things like anxiety or depression or um, sleep issues, coping, compliance concerns, the run of the mill, the team can refer to me for any of those things. Um, and then I also uh, have the opportunity to spend a day actually in the hospital where our patients are admitted and spend, you know, sometimes 30, 30 days in the hospital for their stem cell transplant. So I can see them during the course of that. And I also spend a day, a day a week working in survivorship. I feel like survivorship is a very kind of hot, hot topic and something that many um, 
NCI designated cancer centers are focusing on survivorship programs and sort of what are we doing to help these patients after treatment is done and they're trying to get their lives back on track. Um, so I spend a day in, a, a day a week working in our survivorship clinic. So it gives me the opportunity to see patients at the very beginning, anywhere in the middle, and then also another checkpoint at the end. Um, so I think it's kind of a perfect, a perfect setup. That's a dream setup. Yeah. That you get to at least get one touch with everyone on the way in mm-hmm. and just going to see how everyone's doing. Right. So let's, let's zero in on some of the specific concerns that you see and kind of elaborate on those. Um, you know, cause I think we can kind of have a grasp of things like anxiety in general and probably have a guess of what people are, are kind of concerned about, but, um, let's expand that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think most people are worried, you know, about cancer related things like, is my treatment going to work? What, you know, and then how does it um, blend into or impact every aspect of their life? Like, how am I going to tell my kids? What am I going to do about work? What happens um, to our financial situation? Um, How sick am I going to be? Am I going to be able to tolerate it? Of course, recurrence anxiety is huge. And there's so much worry about what if my cancer comes back, because for most patients, it's such a big unknown without, without a guarantee. Nobody can say, I 100% guarantee your cancer won't come back. Um, a lot of existential anxiety, you know, death and dying and mortality is big. And for some of our patients that are, are young, um, on the younger side, having to sort of face your mortality head on at a time when you really shouldn't be doing that is very, very distressing. Um, people worry about their loved ones and how, you know, how they're handling it, how they're coping. I feel like anxiety just runs rampant. <laughs> I can only imagine in, in that palliative stage, if, if you've kind of gotten that terminal diagnosis, what that does and, and mm-hmm. particularly at an age where you might not even consider it months or, or years before. And then I'd imagine there's a lot of mix of, of anger and, and that in there as well. Right. Anger, depression. Um, it's just a big ball of emotions that most people are pretty overwhelmed by because this mm. isn't something people have to do every day. And I think a lot of my patients say like, this is so different. Like people will say to, to patients, oh, well, you know, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. (laughs) Um, Then we always talk about like, it's really different when you can see the bus coming at you and you know, it could potentially hit you and you're trying to put all these barriers in front of it to keep it away, but you're, you're watching it speed at you versus being sort of surprised. Um, So it's tough. It's tough. And if you happen to be a worrier beforehand, like many people have anxiety or kind of low level anxiety that they've been managing how they manage, you know, throw cancer in the mix and you get a pretty big, a big storm pretty quick. That must give you a lot to deal with in, in trying to manage that and work through that with different techniques. And, and, and how does that look like for you? Obviously it's, it's going to be highly individualized, but in general, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish in that space? Yeah. Um, I try to accomplish, I think just giving people the ability to manage it. I try not to, to set up expectations that there's going to be zero anxiety because that is just not realistic. I often say like, I'm more worried about the patients who are like, Oh, I'm fine. I don't have a care or a worry in the world. I mean, that, (laughs) that is great. 
um, for those patients, they have, you know, something unique that is working for them. Um, I think we, we try to first and foremost validate the fact that anxiety is going to happen and it's not abnormal and you're not crazy. (laughs) And, you know, there's no crazy people, just crazy situations. Um, And so, you know, from there, we sort of, depending on the patient, it kind of depends what approach to take. Um, We're trained to use empirically supported evidence-based treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy or mindfulness-based approaches. Um, I try to kind of gauge like, okay, what what's the feel for this person sitting in front of me and what is going to be the best approach to help them learn how to get their anxiety under control so that it's not taking over. There's enough on their plate. So if we can help give patients the tools they need to manage their anxiety, cope better, that's kind of my goal at the at the end of the day. In in terms of the people that listen to this, a lot of people are are kind of exercise practitioners or, or nutritionists. And the mm-hmm. thing that comes to mind as you're speaking there is is this idea of trying to give them a bit of care when not overwhelming them. Mm-hmm. And we all in our own rights in nutrition and exercise psychology are trying to do the best we can. And if you take the ca- the, the individuals cancer, their experience as a whole, mm-hmm. they're getting a new diagnosis, getting a new treatment, and then they're getting 16 different types of therapy. And then we're all saying, and exercise and nutrition. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to take on as well in in trying to find what's right for the person at the right time and how much I think is really important as well. And I think that highlights the need for this kind of integrated approach, as you said, in, in that we're all working together. Right. Because um, otherwise just so much, huh? It is so much. that That is something that has come up a lot in our, it's very prominent in um, when people are initially diagnosed and everything is just overwhelming. Like not only do I have to cope with the fact that I have cancer, but now what is my treatment going to look like and all the medications I have to take and now being my own advocate for like, what is this insurance bill and how much is this going to cost me? <laughs> and it's just, it's really overwhelming. And in our survivorship visits, even when patients are like, look, you know, my cancer is gone. I've made it through treatment. We are now going back with a physician and saying, do you have a primary care doctor? Are you monitoring your cardiovascular health and your liver health and your kidney health? Because we pretty much just destroyed you with chemotherapy. (laughs) Um, You know, do you, are you seeing your dentist? Are you exercising? Are you staying out of the sun? Are you eating healthy? Are, you know, and we just... You know, sometimes I come in at the end of those appointments and the patients are just sitting there with their eyes like deer in headlights. Like, I thought I was done. <laughs> and <laughs> now I have all of these other things that I have to do to make sure I decrease my risk of my cancer potentially coming back. Um, it's overwhelming at every at every time point. <laughs> um, so let's dig into some of these, these different therapies because mm-hmm. I think... You know, without, without, um, I, I think they're really valuable. Um, mm-hmm. and I think people have kind of like me the, the surface level understanding, but I think having someone like you explain it would be really helpful in kind of giving us an idea of the value in particular of, of these mm-hmm. different approaches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy or CB, we call it CBT for short, is probably at least my go-to approach to helping people manage things like anxiety and, and depression. Um, 
And it's all sort of based on this idea that how you think about things and what you do, your cognitions and your behaviors have an impact on how you feel. So if you kind of imagine this this triangle with arrows that go back and forth between all things, you have your cognitions or your thoughts, your behaviors and your emotions all kind of interconnected, impacting each other. So the idea would be most people want to change the emotion, right? They want to change the anger. I want to be less angry. I want to be less depressed, not so anxious. Um, So if you want to change the emotion, where are your points of entry? That's either change the way you're thinking about things or um, change what you're doing or change your behaviors. For for many people, um, the way we think about things is very automatic and very ingrained. So it is a lot of work to try to reframe um, how you think about things. And I tell my patients, I am not a proponent of positive thinking. It's not just this <laughs> like, yay, you just got to be positive and rainbows and sunshines. Like, I don't know about you, but I have cancer and that is not <laughs> rainbows and sunshines, but more focusing on how you balance your thinking. So you know, when patients say, I'm really worried about what if my cancer comes back, you know, finding ways to think about what if your cancer doesn't come back. Anxiety is going to take you down the most catastrophic, um, worst case scenario um, line of thinking that is not helpful and not always based in reality. So trying to teach patients how to figure out where their minds are maybe playing tricks on them and get them thinking in a way that's more helpful. So, you know, I'm, I, as I'm sitting, I, I'm using this example, not necessarily as a, as a cancer patient, but just the kind of day in and day out of, okay, I'm getting ready to do this podcast. What if I sound like a fool? What if I get a question that I don't know how to answer? You know, what if, um, you know, somebody rings the doorbell while we're talking, you know, you know, my anxiety can go, people's anxiety can get really high really quickly. And that is not going to be helpful for me if I, you know, have to give a talk or give a speech or do something. Um, Some anxiety is helpful, but I also need to think about like, you know, nothing that happens is going to be an ultimate catastrophe. So, you know, I've done all the things I can do that are in my control. And so, you know, I've done my part. Um, so getting people to work on how they, they think about things, which is a whole, it's a whole process of identifying errors in your thinking, doing a lot of this reframing to see the reality or kind of see things from a more balanced way, but then also integrating what you do. Um, are you sleeping well? This is where exercise is really big because exercise is a great antidepressant and anti-anxiety. Um, so we talk, I talk to patients a lot about exercise or what, you know, what are you doing to help interrupt this depressive episode? If you know that seeing your grandchildren brings you joy, then I think you need to, to set up a visit. If it's, you know, I used to be an avid reader or I knit or, you know, I need to engage in some relaxation methods to help bring down my physiological anxiety level. Like what also, in addition to how you're thinking, what can you do behaviorally to help change your mood or decrease your anxiety? So that's kind of CBT in a, in a, in a very brief nutshell, change your thinking, change your behaviors. 
I I think the the adopters of that model, um, you know, for me at least, it's something that I've worked on um, extensively in therapy for the past five to ten years, and it, and it's been instrumental in changing how I deal with a lot of things that come up in my life. Is is your selection of that? I, I, as you're talking to someone, are you evaluating kind of how they are framing things? And then you, you're you seeing some flags go, oh, they might need a bit more mindfulness of, of what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some, some people are not, are not very responsive to like, I'll hear these things. Like I'll hear patients saying like, I'm never going to be able to get through this. And my, like a little flag goes up in my head. Like they said, never, you know, never is a very black and white way of seeing a very gray situation. And they're saying, I'm never going to get through this, even though that's actually actively what they're doing, they are getting through this. So I'm already kind of running through my head, how I would help this patient sort of reframe their thinking as they're talking. And if I'm hearing a lot of these um, ways of thinking that are very ingrained, very automatic, we all have them, we all do it. I may think like, okay, a more cognitive approach or CBT approach may work for this person. But if that person is, is pretty, if they are resistant to doing that type of work, you can't force it. And CBT is very change focused. And for many of our cancer patients, that doesn't work because they cannot change the ultimate situation. And so that's where I think sometimes um, patients are, are, they are in an incredible amount of like pain and suffering sometimes. And sometimes you can't change that and you have to work on how you accept it, unfortunately. Um, But that's why we have other other approaches. Like how do you spend some time being in the present, for example? Like how do you practice mindfulness and at least get a break temporarily from worrying about what's to come, rehashing what's already happened, and just be here now? How can Mm -hmm. we focus on the present And what resonates with a lot of cancer patients is the present is what's most important. Right now is what is where you are, what you you don't have to do anything in this moment except just be, just exist. And sometimes that very simplified approach is helpful in a a kind of chaotic cancer world Um, and learning how to accept things and, and sit with tough emotions, which most people, when they feel depressed or they feel angry or they feel incredible grief or loss, the, the response is get it out of here. Like, I don't want to feel that Mm -mm, mm -mm, get away, get away, get away. (laughs) (laughs) And so sometimes it, it seems very strange to say like, why don't you invite it in? Like if it's pounding down the door anyways, why not just say, okay, I'm going to let you in. I'm going to sit with it. And instead of fighting so hard against it, I'm going to work on sort of accepting that this is part of the process that I'm, that I'm going through. And sometimes when you give up the fight, it's, you give, um, you take away some of the power. I think that those tough emotions have. So it it just it depends it depends on the patient and their personality and and sometimes I give patients the option like hey we can we can fight this depression in a lot of different ways like what makes sense to you it it's so interesting to me um particularly the the kind of 
the selection of different types of therapies and perhaps maybe the stacking of different elements of, th- of, of therapies. Mm-hmm. With the acceptance commitment uh, t- therapy, I'd imagine um, we kind of have this, oh, just accept it. It is infinitely more complex than just accept it. Right. So um, kind of expand on that because I think that's another really, um, really valuable tool in the toolbox. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, I think my my expertise is actually probably more in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which is a whole nother. I, it, it starts to get a little, um, like all of these things you start to see overlap in their mm. approaches. Um, and you start to see mindfulness, which is very ingrained in acceptance commitment therapy, but also in this dialectical behavior therapy. And I think about um, acceptance and commitment therapy sometimes it takes a lot of work for me to implement those approaches with patients because it doesn't fit who I am as a person. <laughs> um, yeah. So when I say practice mindfulness, I tell my patients, I have to practice acceptance and mindfulness myself because it does not come natural to me. So I recognize how hard it is. I want to get in there and make like tangible changes to get patients to (laughs) see those results. um, Even though I recognize that's not the best approach. So acceptance and commitment therapy is um, we have a, we actually have a a couple of people on our psychology team that are well-versed and well-trained in that. So sometimes if I get a patient that that is like, oh, I really think this is my approach. I'll kind of scoot them over to someone else who has that expertise. And we kind of do that back and forth with each other. Like, oh, Liz has expertise in dialectical behavior therapy. We've got a patient with some, um, you know, personality concerns or, you know, difficulties with um, managing, you know, their distress or their emotions. So we'll, you know, we'll kind of shuffle them Liz's way. But I think generally what I know about acceptance and commitment therapy is that it is a process that acceptance just (laughs) doesn't happen overnight. Um, And it takes effort and almost like radical choice to accept things. Um, And um, I think it's just, it's a, it's a tough place to be when you just have to accept things as they are. And that is a process. I'd imagine you're also, you're getting into, I can touch on acceptance and then a week from now I'm back way away from it. I've got to work towards getting there again. It's not like you, you hit acceptance once and you're over the line. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of a bit of back and forth as well. It is. There's a, there's an interesting, um, skill set in dialectical behavior therapy, this type of therapy is very skills based. So you learn exactly what skill to use in what situation. And there's a skill called radical acceptance. And it's called radical for a reason because it's not just, oh, you just accept it. It's like a big, a big event, a big choice. And they talk about um, having to turn the mind so that you kind of come to this fork in the road where you say, I can fight this, I can fight this, I can fight this, or I can try to shift towards acceptance and that you will have to do that kind of over and over and over and over (laughs) again. And it's not just a one and done. Um, Talk a little bit about the differences between um, dialectical behavior behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. Um, I mean, they come from the same the same school. I think dialectical behavior therapy has been um, 
has been, they've done trials to prove that this is a more helpful approach for, um, you know, people who maybe have personality disorders or substance use concerns. CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is very skills-based, but um, dialectical behavior therapy is is delivered in a very unique way and was initially developed to work with people who had um, a lot of like suicidal ideation um, and difficulties kind of on that on that front. Um, and so it was almost kind of delivered in a class format where you have a group that you attend where you learn all these different skills. There's four modules, mindfulness. Um, so it's all based on you. First of all, you have to be in the present. And then there are these other modules of interpersonal effectiveness. Like how do I work and get along with the people around me and get what I need? Um, distress tolerance. What do I do when I am in a distressing situation that I need to learn how to handle? And then emotion regulation and emotion regulation is really important because, some folks really struggle with their emotions being very high, very low, um, up and down, and learning how to get an even keel is really important. That emotion regulation piece isn't super present in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is just kind of a one, you can do one-on-one with your clinician versus dialectical behavior therapy, which has this group component where you sort of learn these different modules and skills. Um, and it's very, it's very rigid and structured. CBT is also, but I would argue that dialectical behavior therapy is almost more so. And maybe less focus on, on changing thoughts or reframing thoughts where you get much more of that focus in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, the DBT is more heavily, heavily B behavioral (laughs) (laughs) and accepting the, the reason it's called dialectical behavior therapy is because there's also this focus on dialectics that like two opposing truths can be held at the same time. Like I can be very angry with you and love you at the same time. I can be hopeful and incredibly scared at the same time. Mm. Um, You can have, instead of, you know, feeling like these things are opposing or you have to pick one, it can be both both and not, but either. I can see so much value in that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm someone that is, is, has been interested in this area for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, even as you're speaking there, there, there's things that I'm drawn that have a lot of value, but there's also as you're as you're speaking, I'm like, wow, you know, I've I've been learning about this for a long time, um, on a superficial level, of course, mm-hmm. and there's there's even things there that I would have to sit on and reflect on. I'd imagine not everyone is able to comprehend some of the stuff that you're throwing at them, and how does mm-hmm. that, you know, whether it's education or SES, affect the impact and or ability to receive that type of mm-hmm. um, therapy. Yeah, no kidding. I, I've got a, a patient right now that was born with some like developmental disabilities. Sometimes, you know, we get patients with autism spectrum disorders or, you know, there are sometimes we just get patients where they're like, this stuff does not make sense to me. Like, <laughs> I am not, I am not meditating, be in the present, get out of here. Like, I, you know, <laughs> um, and so there, you know, there are other approaches there, you know, there's a um, solutions focused therapy, which is a very 
very basic, like what have you done in the past? What's worked before? What can we do now? That's just very basic, like solution, you know, the, the, the gentleman that I, that I'm working with right now, who's got some developmental disabilities, you know, he does crossword puzzles and word searches during his chemotherapy treatments to help him deal with his his anxiety to get through. We are not going to be able to do a, okay, let's examine your thoughts and identify (laughs) the thinking errors and then work to reframe those things. And like, not, For him, it's a cognitive concern that's getting in the way. For some people, they're like, I'm not going to do that. That's just not me. So we need to figure out something else. And there's always other approaches to fall back on that are a little bit more simplified or um, basic in just, okay, let's explore every solution here and find what is going to work for you. Um, And some people just need a, you know, I think sometimes we get a little maybe defensive when people say like, Oh, all you do is talk to patients all day. Like you don't actually do anything. You just talk. Um, And, you know, I think sometimes we're quick to be like, "Ah, we did all this schooling and we do evidence-based treatments and we work really hard to deliver, you know, treatment that helps people manage their emotional and psychological concerns. And there are times where people sometimes come in and they need an objective person that's not their family. They need to be heard. They need to be validated. They need to have an emotional breakdown with you because they don't want to do it with their husband or their kids. Um, And there are aspects of just kind of genuineness, empathy, and warmth that you have in a relationship where sometimes the intervention is just listening or just being and sitting with a patient who's going through it. Um, Sometimes that's the intervention and that's it. It's so funny. We have the exact same thing on Airside where, uh, I mean, we talked about off air, you know, we we think that exercise is a valuable role in a lot of folks' lives. Mm -hmm. And it certainly can play a role in in navigating some of the side effects of different treatments. Um, But a lot of us would have gone to extensive training to to learn how to design exercise programs like i got a phd in squats (laughs) (laughs) and we want so desperately to to have this super and we almost at times overcomplicated to 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 justify Mm -hmm. you know our existence and and that's a process that i've been working through as a practitioner and when i started out i wanted to have the big huge fancy programs and and everyone had to do these really complex workouts and it's like the, the people that we work out work with most people benefit from most things and it doesn't have to be super complex and just mm-hmm. whatever is going to get people active and keep them active is going to be the best thing for them, you know? Right. Um, so it's really interesting to see the parallel there as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, as you're talking there, you know, that idea of kind of my my father's generation, the old school um, men who mm-hmm. psychology, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, do, you, do you have a lot of stigma still and, and, you know, what are some misconceptions about what you're doing and your role in, in cancer care? Mm-hmm. There are, I mean, mental health care is still very stigmatizing. I still get patients all the time that don't want to come in or they feel like they're being forced by their doctor or, you know, their nagging family member. And they very much feel like they are being identified as crazy or that something is very wrong with them when that is not the case. So the stigma is very is very high in Kansas. I mean, we do get 
um, a, a fairly diverse population of folks, but we do serve a lot of, um, of a lot of the rural population where I feel like there is sort of that, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get on with it. And why am I feeling these emotions and why is this stuff getting in my way? And I feel like a lot of patients interpret their, their sadness, their anger, their worries, their fears as weaknesses. Um, so the stigma is definitely still there. Um, you know, I, people come in and say like, oh, do I need to lay down on the couch? Are you going to hypnotize me? You know, it's like, <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I am not going to do any, <laughs> any of those things. Um, some people are just kind of confused in general about the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So sometimes patients think that I'm going to try to give them medication, which, you know, I'm, I'm not trained to do. I'm not a, a medical doctor. Um, you know, there are, but there are also misconceptions sometimes about even what our providers, our physicians, our referral sources think that we do. You know, sometimes I think I, they must think I have a magic wand. It's sort of like take this patient and like fix them so that we can move on. And sometimes there are lifelong ingrained patterns and issues and concerns that we cannot fix overnight. Um, sometimes I think physicians, um, nurses, whoever's referring to us, you know, they say like this patient says they don't want to do therapy or they want to quit chemo. Um, and they think that we're going to convince them otherwise. And it is often like, mm -mm, we are prob we are here to support the patient. And if they have, we can help them explore the pros and cons and think through what their decision process looks like. And at the end of the day, we may come out supporting that the patient should discontinue treatment for whatever their reasons are. Um, so, you know, I think misconceptions about like how quickly we work or how much change we can, we can make um, sometimes is I'm like, whew, man, this is, you've got somebody who's 75 years old here. That's 75 <laughs> years of doing things a certain way that we may not be able to change overnight. I love that focus on on um, individual autonomy and allowing them to make whatever decision they want to make. Because mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's the same with with what we do. Again, I think we can sometimes get um, evangelic about our, our our role in in people's lives, and it's important to to value what you do, of, mm -hmm. of course. But I keep falling back to you know, there's a lot of trials right now that are looking at exercise and survival in mm -hmm. cancer, and I think there's a there's going to be some really interesting work that comes out of that. But it, it is so different to sitting down across the table with someone who's got three months left to live. Right. And they say, well, you said this study showed it increased survival. Is that going to happen for me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, whoa, we have to be really careful about how we're delivering this message and, and how we're showing value to people. And ultimately, right. it's their decision what they want to do, you know? Right. If somebody says, you know, I've had patients sitting in front of me and say, you know, I believe that God is going to cure me, you know, and, and whatever people's spiritual, you know, I often tell people I am not a chaplain. I am not a spiritual guide. That is also not my expertise, but we can talk about whatever, you know, and if somebody says that I will often talk about, okay, you know, are there some ways to think about maybe God does work through other people and working through your medical team? Is there a place where 
medicine fits into your belief system. And sometimes it doesn't. And we have to respect patients' wishes, their opinions, their decisions, and not invalidate them because it doesn't always align with what we think something should be or how we think something should go. That's really interesting um, because it it kind of, not in the same manner, but as you're talking about people coming in with kind of different ideas of why they may or may not want to do treatment. Mm -hmm. Do you face, um, say some common misconceptions, you know, I want my diet to cure cancer instead of treatments or I want to forego treatment. At what point in that intersection do you or do you have a role to step in and go, listen, you know, we will talk through this, but they're also you know, your herbal tea isn't going to do anything for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. It, I mean, and it's tough because it blows my mind how many things are out there that are marketed as cures for cancer and, and are sort of preying on people's vulnerabilities and, and people that just want to grasp onto anything that that's going to help. Um, you know, a, a common um, thing that I've heard is vitamin C infusions and people wanting to do vitamin C infusions because, you know, they think it's going to cure their cancer, or, you know, whatever the case may be. I try not to to fight or argue. I will often say like, I am a consumer of the research and I have not come across um, any research that shows that this is helpful or beneficial. And I want to make sure that you're also not doing anything that's going to potentially do you harm. And if there's something that you want to do, a supplement, a vitamin, um, a a work with a shaman, if you want to do acupuncture, like how can we maybe do both like giving patients the ability to say like, okay, let's do these things that you think are going to be helpful where I sort of fall out is where the medical team says like that regimen is going to impact their chemotherapy. So they cannot take those supplements or those vitamins because it's going to mess things up. That's where I say, you know, we have to have open communication with your medical team too, to make sure that, we're doing everything we can. So I kind of try to take the approach of not trying to convince people against their ideas, but just support them. What do you think is going to be helpful? Can we, can we do all the things? Um, And sometimes patients still decide that they want to go a different route and who am I to, to stand in their way? I can only present them with the information, the facts, the evidence that I know, give them all the information to help them make an informed decision. So what you, you may or may not have a perception of what your role was going to be before you got into this as a career. What has changed over the time that you spent in this? And you're like, wow, that was different than what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, I think uh, I don't know that I realized how incredibly resilient people are. Like, I know we are tough and humans are strong and all those things, but the things that people go through are amazing to me and the sort of the human spirit and the resiliency, if anything, I fall back on that a lot. Like we are built to survive and I see it every single day, even in the the worst possibilities and circumstances. So I think I, I have learned in cancer that, um, 
that resiliency is, is incredible. Um, I have learned that caregivers are more distressed often than the patients are. Um, I have learned that people are incredibly thankful and grateful once they have this support around them that I don't always know that I got that vibe when I did kind of general mental health work, but in cancer, people feel the love. They want to give the love We're you know, we're taught, you know, don't hug your patients and don't share personal information. And, you know, these patients, they want to like grab you. And obviously not right now, obviously, but you know, they, they want to hug you. They want to thank you. They're incredibly grateful for the, the role psychology can play, which is something that I, I guess I didn't expect either. Um, I think I'm also consistently surprised when I have somebody come in and say, cancer is the least of my worries. Like, I don't have a home. Um, I just lost my, you know, my daughter in a car accident. I, you know, when people come in and they say cancer is the least stressful part of my life, <laughs> that mm. I didn't, I didn't think that could ever be the case. And I have seen many, many patients where cancer is sort of like low on the stress list. Just surprising um, to me. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it immediately goes, well, what else is going on right. in your life? You know? The, um, the, the expectation for medical knowledge is also, I, I can't think of every single day I am continuing to learn and understanding these patients' illnesses, their diseases, the details of their treatments, um, I, I didn't realize how much medical information I would need to know and understand and how much that actually helps with the therapeutic relationship. If they believe that you're, it, it's sort of why I do believe in cancer psychology and the training of psycho-oncology being very specific to cancer, because it's just a different, if somebody came to me with, let's say like epilepsy or Alzheimer's or something like that, where I don't kind of inherently understand the illness, there's a piece missing where there's a lot of time that has to be not necessarily wasted, but the patient's going to have to explain to me or things that I'm just not going to inherently understand. Um, so the, the, the need for the medical knowledge was also a bit of a surprise to me, but I like it. So I'm not, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I, uh, I go, because we obviously have the similar um, needs as, as exercise uh, folks with, mm -hmm. if you inherently understand the, the disease and the treatments, you have much better chance of designing a safe and effective program. Right. Um, with the caveat that I've, I'm sure that the majority of what you've learned has been in clinical practice mm -hmm. in what we do, we learn the basics of chemo, radiation, hormonal therapy, whatever. But as far as how rapidly the medicine is advancing, you know, it, it's so difficult to keep up. So it's it's kind mm -hmm. of at some point you cut the cord with your general knowledge of the treatments and that. And then it's it's also that dynamic with the patient and, or, or the person and walking through what they're specifically going through, because mm -hmm. ultimately everyone's going to experience from our perspective side effects differently. And, mm -hmm. and that will change how we deliver exercise programs. So it is. um I, I'm with you though. It, it's such a fascinating area that once you dig into it, it's like the amount of stuff that we need to know and how many different things go into this problem solving. It, it's such a rewarding area to be a part of. Mm -hmm. 
there's a, I feel like there's a lot of focus right now for many of our patients on this um, CAR T therapy um, or chimeric antigen receptor uh, T cell therapy. And just learning about um, when we do evaluations for these patients, there are a subset of um, side effects that are very specific, lots of neurological side effects and um, restrictions and things that patients have to do differently when they go through this type of treatment. But to learn about what it means to genetically re-engineer your body's T cells, (laughs) it's just like, (laughs) I have to go back to biology and start kind of like fresh all over to understand sort of the amazing thing that we're doing, um, but also to understand the potential very severe side effects that can come with that, that patients and their caregivers need to be prepared for. So it's never ending learning basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about the dynamic between um, the patient and the caregiver. You kind of touched on it there and I imagine that's a whole different beast (laughs) with the experience of both and the dynamic of how each are handling it um, Mm -hmm. and how that plays off each other as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The research shows that caregivers often endorse higher levels of distress than patients do, either equal to or higher. And it's been um, the the kind of foundation for why we are at our center. I am engaged in some in, in some research to start um, measuring caregiver distress. So if you're a NCI designated cancer center, comprehensive cancer center, you're required to look at distress or measure distress in patients. Um, And so we are trying to roll out in the bone marrow transplant um, clinic and in the lung cancer clinic, measuring distress in caregivers and giving um, caregivers the same distress measurement tool with some tweaks um, to caregivers because they are just as distressed and they often are not taking care of themselves because they're so overwhelmed with taking care of the patient. And there's a lot of focus on the patient that it's really easy for the caregiver to fall kind of to the wayside. Um, I think caregivers have the same fears, anxieties, sadness, emotions, but they don't necessarily always want to share them because they don't want to overburden the patient or like, I don't, I don't want my husband to now worry about me or I don't want my sister to flip out about how I'm handling this. So I'm keeping it kind of to myself, but I'm, you know, they're also not sleeping and they're not, you know, they're not going and doing the things for their own self care or even their own, like, you know, got patients that are like, Oh, I haven't seen my doctor, my primary care physician in like five years. And (laughs) I do have this back pain and my diabetes is probably like out of control, but I don't have time to do that, to take care of myself. So the caregiver's, you know, concerns and distress is high. The patient's distress is high. And then you get the the interplay of family and caregivers between each other and how those relationships are impacted. And it gets heavy and difficult quick. And it it's nice that I have the ability to see caregivers. Like sometimes we just see caregivers because they need their own support um, but I also do family and couples um, focused therapy also, which is so important because this impacts everyone. Is uh, is part of your care or, or is the structure, is it supported by insurance or how does the, the funder model work? 
Yeah, it is supported by insurance. And that's not the, I think that's typically the setup that if you have mental health benefits, then, you know, we are, we're covered. Um, we sometimes have patients that either don't have insurance or don't have mental health benefits or coverage. And then we have um, a postdoctoral fellow, we've got interns, we've got practicum students. And so sometimes if we've got a patient that, you know, can't afford it out of pocket or doesn't have insurance, we'll have a, a trainee that we supervise work with that patient. It's so frustrating, isn't it, to, you know, having that be one of the limiters in access? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I have had patients say, I, I do have mental health benefits and it's still costing me an arm and a leg. I can't afford to see you anymore. And that makes me that makes me really sad, especially when it's very disruptive to the to the care. Yeah, I mean, we, we face the same thing on the exercise side and it's it's just it's often the ones that need it the most as well, which, which makes it worse. Right. So um, a quick, or not necessarily a sidebar, but an area I want to make sure we covered is is your expertise and, and your um, work in diversity related topic, topics and multiculturally, multicultural competent practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's such a valuable area and it's something that um, isn't necessarily spoken enough about. So um, tell me a little bit about your experience in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I I have been interested and I mean some of it is probably because of my my own experiences and identity like I identify as a as biracial, you know, my my mom is white and my dad is black and um I initially did my master's thesis on um you know biracial identity and sort of this how do you sort it out if you have, you know, two or multiple identities and you're, you know, you're not black enough to fit in with that side or, but you're not white enough to fit in with this side. And when you're working through the identity process, you know, there is inherently sometimes depression and anxiety that can come along with the toughness of sort of having to navigate those things. So that's kind of where all of this started. And then I've, I focused on, um, microaggressions, which I know some people are familiar with. That seems to be a term that maybe just in the last, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years has become more well-known. When I first started, people were like, what is a microaggression? I'm like, well, it's, it's kind of racism today. It's not the sort of like in your face, like overt um, use of racial slurs and like very, you know, obvious forms of racism, but more of this like subtle, you know, messages that are delivered. It can be verbal. It can be a look or a gesture, um, that sends the, sends a denigrating message, um, based on your, your ethnicity, um, sign up kind of like undercover racism, so to speak. Um, and then, um, I'm also, um, very interested in unconscious bias, which kind of falls under the same umbrellas as racial microaggressions. Um, and I've done a lot of talks on unconscious bias and, and microaggressions. I did my dissertation on, on racial microaggressions. Um, and I think the focus on, and, and I often try to give a, 
an example of unconscious bias because it's kind of a tough thing to, to grasp because we all have it, including myself. Um, and it's, you know, we have stereotypes about certain groups of people. Um, but sometimes when those stereotypes or those biases are under the surface, it's like, we don't even know that they're there. So I had a patient a few months ago, um, she was like a 45 year old female. Um, and I said something along the lines of like, well, what does your husband think? Or I, I knew she was married, but I, and I said something like, well, what is your, what's, what's your husband do or something like that? And she said, well, my wife, and I was like, oh, Liz, yeah. like, you know better, <laughs> like you of all people should like, you know, you should know better. But that was my, it's not like unconscious bias isn't like intentionally hurtful and doesn't, it's not always, um, something that you can control, but you can get to know when it's there. And I was like, Oh, there's my bias that, you know, marriage is typically what's normative is man and woman. And that is not everyone's experience. And look at there, there's my unconscious bias coming out. Um, and then the patient was left feeling kind of like, Oh, well that, kind of hurt, you know, <laughs> and we were able to talk about it. And that's, that's the nice thing about being in the know about unconscious bias and things like microaggressions is it's often part of the discussions I have with my patients. And I am all for being very open about it and saying like, Ooh, I messed up. Like, I'm really sorry. Let's figure out how we can fix this, repair this. But those conversations are not happening um, a lot of times and it's impacting it's impacting patients' care. For many minorities, There's we have to consider from a diversity standpoint that there is a lot of medical mistrust for some of our, you know, our patients from different backgrounds. Um, and, you know, thinking about presenting a clinical trial, you know, if, if you're, if you're trying to elicit a, an older African-American man who maybe learned that you never go to the doctor and you can't trust the doctor because of the history of, you know, black people in America being used or abused by the medical system. There are these things that are ingrained that make it tough, but then we're also battling against health disparities, which is something that I think we're, we have a perfect example of with the COVID-19 where you know, minorities are dying at higher rates um, than than white people. And it's, you know, the same, you see the same thing for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, like higher rates of, <laughs> of cancer um, in minority populations and also less access to care. And, you know, all these things come together and then you walk into a room and you don't know what kind of unconscious biases or things that you're going to witness in your, in your medical treatment. So I, I get, I get passionate about this because I think we need to always be considering people's different different belief systems, backgrounds, and how that's interplaying in their experience of their treatment and their medical care. And and you know, it it's it's big and it's been I think we have to talk about it. And I, I go back and forth between is this something we make mandatory? Um, because it's tough to get people in a room talking about this stuff if they don't want to be there. 
Um, but also how do we make it a priority if it's not mandatory? Like I, I chair our psychiatry department's diversity committee and, you know, we went back and forth on, do we, do we make it mandatory for trainees to attend? Do we just say like, you have to, you have to attend this committee. You have to go, you have to participate. Um, and I'm not sure what the right answer is right answer is, um, maybe it's yes. Um, I don't know, but it's something that's ingrained in, in everything that I do and something that I'm always considering and something that I am asked to give talks and lectures and didactics on all the time. And I, I love doing that. Um, sadly, our, um, our big APOS American Psychosocial Oncology Society, we were, um, supposed to have a conference, um, and it got, it got canceled, but I was set to do a symposium with some colleagues about micro interventions, which is basically how to intervene when you experience, like when you experience a microaggression yourself, or you see someone else experience one, like, training people on like what to do because even sometimes when I'm on the receiving end of a microaggression, I'm sort of frozen in my own skin, not knowing how to, how to respond. And then I beat myself up about it later. Like, Oh, I should have said this, or I should have done that. Um, and sometimes I need somebody else to sort of intervene for me, but then maybe my friend next to me, they don't know what to do either. So I think a lot of the training has to focus on being able to identify bias and identify microaggressions and then figure out what do you do about them and like, how can you personally make a difference? There's so much to explore there. I know. Um, I was like, wow, I just said a whole lot. (laughs) Well, it's just, it's something that's, um, it's fascinating to me. So, so my background, my girlfriend's black and I'm Irish Mm -hmm. and we're talking about identity. Our kid's not going to know what they are, (laughs) but, um, she has, has brought so much to my attention that, um, by nature of me growing up, I'm not, I wasn't as familiar with the American history, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that as a white uh, male is confronting, you know, and I think you, one of the things you were mentioning there, even with yourself, was um, when you're talking about that marriage, it wasn't intentional. And I think when the conversation comes about, there can almost be a defensiveness because people want so badly to to let you know that it's not intentional. Mm-hmm. And if it's uncaught, it just happened. Right. You know, and, and I think from what I hear from you, it's it's more just exploring a conversation and having that conversation rather than attacking people for it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that, that is part of specifically with, with microaggressions, you know, and people say things like, well, what are you like? Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm a human. Uh, I'm awesome. I don't know. What do you mean? What am I, you know? Oh, well, are you Hispanic or are you black? Well, are you, you know, and it's like, all right, well, (laughs) the message you're giving me here is that there's something like wrong or different with me. Or, you know, I've got a, a, a friend her in her name is, is a little different, I guess, so to speak. Um, and so a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, that's an interesting name. Where are you from? And she's like, Brooklyn. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> what do you mean, where am I from? Um, and when, and when you get, um, you know, people say all, all kinds of things and, 
it's sort of like a mosquito bite every once in a while isn't so bad, but when you are getting bit all the time, all the time, which is what the experience for many minorities of all kinds of backgrounds, like I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say like, oh, that's so gay. And it's like, oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, and people are so defensive, right? Because nobody wants to believe that they hold biases or, you know, potentially prejudice or discriminatory or racist beliefs. Um, and it's easy to explain those things away, which is the, the catch 22, right? Is somebody, I can say to you, Hey, what you just said to me was actually really offensive. Um, and they can say, Oh, that's not what I meant. Oh, you're just being sensitive. Oh, you're just taking it wrong, you know, and because the perpetrator essentially has the power to explain it away, it makes it that much more difficult to manage. And I often think about what is what is happening in a medical setting when you already have this power differential between you and the people whose life you're putting your life in their hands. People are not going to tell their doctors like, you know, I think that's a really stupid suggestion that I eat all organic and exercise at the gym every day because I can't afford that food. I live in a food desert where I don't have access to a grocery store and a gym, like, are you kidding me? Like a gym membership, really? Like you, you know, nothing about me, but I'm not, I'm not going to confront my doctor about that because you, there's a power differential here. And, and research shows that for minorities in oncology, in the oncology setting, we've looked at dyads between um, specifically like black patients and white providers and less information is often given. The interactions or the appointments are shorter. Like there are tangible things that are different in the care for minority patients than for white patients, which is alarming. And I know people don't want to talk about it and they don't want to hear it, but we have to talk about it. <laughs> you, It would be not surprising to you that I would say well over 90% of the exercise oncology literature is Caucasians, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and I, I think it's a combination of everything that you, you just said, you know, mistrust, access, disparity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's 2020 um, and there's almost this, uh, almost a bit of a backlash now against this quote unquote woke culture. Are, are you experiencing that same thing? It, you know, in, in terms of like this idea of microaggressions, are you feeling people coming back at you um, and saying it's an over woke culture? Or is it, are you still facing a lot of forward progress? Um, I think probably a little bit of both. Um, I, I, I mean, there were people, I feel like when, when we, um, elected president Obama, people were like, we've got a black president. Everything's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are no racial issues ever. Like we're all done. We're in a post-racial society. And it's like, all right, well, you know, even when I would hear comments like that, I'd be like, oh, that is so offensive to me. Like you have no idea what it's like to walk in, you know, in somebody else's, in somebody else's shoes. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think some people are like, ah, oh, whatever, let it go. Everybody's just too sensitive and needs to kind of, you know, develop thick skin and that's just, you know, whatever we're, we're over it. We're done. Um, but I also, on the other hand, think that people are more open to talking about these things and discussing these things. And now that we have 
I, I really do think it's, it's hard when, when I feel like I'm telling you my experience, I'm telling you this stuff happens to me and people maybe don't believe me, but when I can cite a research article or I can cite a study that shows it, then maybe people are more willing to listen. So the fact that we are trying to, and I think there is a push to expand research in these areas, it's helping keeping the conversation going. Um, it makes me sad sometimes to think like my own experience or the experience of your patients telling you isn't enough. Um, there, there's a problem there also, but however we can get the conversation going and keep it going, it's kind of like, I'm willing to do, to do whatever. <laughs> oh God, I'd imagine even if that power potential power difference exists, you know, um, if your patient's trying to explain to a doctor of, of things that have happened to them throughout the day, you've got a, a six year old white male who everyone treats him with the utmost respect, it's like, what are you talking about? People are nice and right. friendly all the time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when I've given, you know, talks on unconscious bias and things like that before, you know, there are, there are inevitably people who are maybe skeptical or really believe that this stuff is not, not an issue. And, and it's tough. It's tough sometimes to maintain your own professionalism and manage your own emotions to be able to convey a message in a way that people can hear it. Um, but. So the, the, the strategies to target or work through this are, are so complex and much more outside the scope of this, this little chat we're having. Um, but where can people, like, what can people do now? I've listened to this. I've never known about this before. What can I do to educate myself or find more about all of this type of stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, there are great, there are even great, like humorous, funny videos. If you like get on YouTube and Google microaggressions or unconscious bias, I mean, even just like looking up these terms, um, NPR has like a great, they did this awesome project where people were, um, they were just giving their examples of microaggressions in their everyday life. So people could sort of just get a feel for like, what is an example of a microaggression? Like, oh, you speak such great English. Well, yeah, I was raised here. Like, I, I actually don't even speak Chinese. But like, you know, <laughs> there, are, um, there are great resources out there, even if you just take the time to, to look it up. I think that there are often trainings and um, continuing education opportunities that people will pass up because they're kind of like, meh, I don't need that. And I think we have to challenge ourselves to take on those opportunities and try to always educate. Like, I feel like I, I could, I need work on it. We all need work on it to stay, to stay educated, um, or aware and on top of the things that are happening. Um, Sometimes I tell people like change up where you get your information from and try a, you know, try a new outlet or a new, you know, engage with people in different ways just to experience other people and other cultures, like step out of your comfort zone once in a while. Um, we talk about in, in research, in, um, in hiring, like, okay, so most of the people that I work with are white. Like, what are we going to do to change that? How can we recruit a more diverse sample? Where do we need to advertise? Do we need to 
Do we need to recruit from historically black universities? Do we need to advertise in, you know, newspapers or magazines or places that are going to attract minority attention? Do we need to, I had a, a great practicum student who was doing um, an ovarian cancer intervention or pre-screening intervention and she was specifically tar- targeting African-American women. So her intervention took place in church. You know, she, you know, and she's this blonde white girl who was like, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> like I'm going to the black Baptist church and I'm recruiting because unless I show up and unless I'm there and you can see me and you can talk to me, you know, it's, it's never going to work. So I think from all standpoints, it's like, how do we do things differently to try to make an impact? And sometimes it means working harder, but I think it's, you know, what it. though, that, that's such a good uh, point because, you know, a lot of us in, in, in my field, at least, um, there is an understanding that, um, African-Americans are underrepresented, mm-hmm. but I don't know how many people are doing that. I don't know how many people are saying, all right, let's find them. Let's mm-hmm. actually go to where they're at. Let's engage with them. And in the community in general, Yeah. Um, a lot of us are just, oh, but we put a flyer on Facebook. I don't know where they... <laughs> right, right. You know? um, and I, I think your that call for kind of creativity and thinking differently about how we recruit um, can only be beneficial to make a more representative sample. Um, right. And, and also just enhance recruitment rates. You know, it's hard enough to to get this stuff. But until we step down out of the ivory tower and get into the community and show people that we are real people, that mistrust isn't going to go anywhere. Right. That's exactly right. And I, I know that it's more that it can sometimes be more work. And I know everyone is busy and bogged down in their clinical work and their research endeavors you know, and it's worth it. And we're never going to get rid of, you know, we're never going to have an impact on health disparities and, you know, on diabetes and decreasing cardiovascular disease until we get these populations that are, you know, overly burdened exercising or eating differently. And you can't do that unless you kind of get into the trenches, so to speak. But it's all easier said than done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we've solved it and we're both going back to doing nothing <laughs> um so listen um i can't thank you enough for your time that was such a fascinating chat about both what you do and and your experience in in the the multicultural and, and minority psychology issues is, is fascinating um where can people find find out more about you and keep up with your work yeah um so I, when I saw that question on your, um, on your, on your list, I was like, wow, I should probably have like a professional website or, um, some (laughs) kind of like blog or something. I, I work with a, a palliative care doctor who is like, he has his own Twitter and, you know, he, he has a lot of like social media presence professionally. Um, and it's kind of strange because as psychologists, I think we're often encouraged to keep a low profile because we don't necessarily want patients finding us or, mm. you know, we don't want to get into multiple relationships and stuff like that. So I think we tend to keep it more low key. So that question forced me to start thinking a little bit about how I can make my presence known a little bit more than like, look up Elizabeth Monks in Google Scholar and (laughs) see what you can find from my research endeavors. But we do have a very active um, website for our diversity committee for the university. So it's a long, it's a long website to even give out. So I just tell people if you Google um, KUMC or University of Kansas, 
um, and diversity committee psychiatry department, you will find pictures of our committee. Um, you'll find um, articles, um, websites, events, uh, resources, copies of our like agendas and articles we've read. So um, there's a lot of a lot of information there. Um, we just our last committee meeting we sort of did a a COVID nineteen diversity focus, just talking about xenophobia and, (laughs) you know, health disparities and just, you know, reminding ourselves that we always, always, always need need to be considering issues of diversity because it impacts everyone and everything. I'll link all those uh, sites in in the show notes and um, Liz, I I can't take enough of your time. Um, Not that you should be more out there. you can do whatever you want to do, <laughs> but I think um, your information is so valuable. Who knows? I'll just have you as a repeat guest periodically and we'll just chat. That would be I, fantastic. I what- then I can say, you know, check out this awesome podcast where we talked about Hey, you scratch boy issues. back, you know? I, yeah. will, I will highlight you <laughs> and me. <laughs> Uh, you've just found your new regular co-host of the Reach podcast. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, now, listen, I appreciate so much. Um, I think you're doing some great work and, and thanks so much for the chat. Thank you.